Welcome to the DMA Politics Podcast. My name is Michael Sturrock and I'm the Public Affairs Manager at the DMA. I'm recording another of our special episodes because I'm sitting in the conference centre just outside Aberdeen at the SNP conference. And it's a special episode for yet another reason because I'm sitting next to John Nicholson, who, if you've been looking at my Twitter account for the past couple of weeks, uh, has been hosting me kindly on his show. So today I'm uh, in the fortunate position of flipping the microphone, as the it were. The tables are turned. The tables are turned. The, the sensei becomes... The, no, I'm not even going to go there. Be Definitely gen- not, not Be quite. gentle. <laughs> uh, no, John, you, you are, uh, well, a party stalwart, of course, and you've been not only uh, an MP for the SNP between 2015-2017, you've been a broadcaster and journalist for a number of years on the couch on the BBC and ITV and elsewhere, and of course on top radio at the moment, where I've had the pleasure of tuning into or talking to every week. Um, so, John, what's, you've been covering party conferences for, I guess, a number of years. I have. I've been to, I used to go to all the party conferences as a political journalist for the BBC, and I'm here as a, a journalist for, for talk radio, but obviously I'm in the peculiar position also, as you say, of having been, and, and perhaps being again, uh, a politician for the SNP. The SNP conferences have changed out of all recognition in, in the years that I've been coming to them. Today, for example, we're in a conference uh, centre outside Aberdeen, and that's because there are only two venues in all of Scotland which are now big enough to host the SNP because there are so many members. I there's, didn't realise that. There's something like, I think the latest count, something like 130, 140,000 SNP members. Now, per head of population, that makes it, I think I'm right in saying, the biggest party in all of Europe per head of population. Wow. And what I find extraordinary looking around is the number of young people here. Mm. And that really reflects the demographics on independence because the only group now which is supporting independence, the uh, only group which is opposing independence are the over 65s. So every other demographic group now supports uh, independence. And I think that's very obvious when you look around here. Mm. And we know, of course, there's been this amazing poll out on Sunday, yeah. which shows in the Sunday Times that 50% of Scots now support independence. But I think an even more important part of the Sunday Times poll is that a significant majority of people think they will be better off if they live in an independent Scotland as part of the European Union mm. rather than a Boris Johnson Brexit Britain. And that is the holy grail for the SNP to persuade people not just yeah. that independence is a nice thing, but that they're, they'll be better off. They'll yeah. have more money in their pocketbook. It's the, as you said on my programme uh, on Sunday, it's the, uh, the economy stupid yeah. line from Bill, Bill Clinton. It's the, yeah. it's the line that politicians always want to hear from people, which mm. is, I think I'll do better under you, and my family will do better under you. Yeah, and that's the interesting thing. Of course, there is the political side, the, the idealistic side of the, the Scottish National Party, which has been present for a number of years. It uh, is expressing a preference for a more European, social democratic style of government that they don't feel they're getting from Westminster. But as you say, when you bring in this element, which you could say that they lost on, well, that was the reason that they lost in 2014, not enough people were convinced about the economic arguments, but when you bring that in, in combination with this uh, consensus on the political ideals, then that's quite a winning formula. Yes, Brexit is a game changer. I found that in 
2017 in the general election, going round the doors, people hadn't really focused yet in Scotland on what effect Brexit would have on their life. And now people know exactly, or they've got a pretty good idea, of what effect Brexit will have on their life. And there were a substantial group of people, we know this, who were neither staunch unionists nor convinced independence supporters, people in the middle who weren't yet persuaded of the arguments, but nonetheless felt themselves to be both British and also European. And what Brexit has done is forced people, a lot of people in that category, to make a choice. Do I see myself as more European, Scottish and European, or do I see myself as British in the context of Brexit. Absolutely. And I think for most Scots, they see themselves as having lots of British elements in their identity, uh, lots of connections, but ultimately, looking at the future of our children and grandchildren, we want to be part of Europe. We don't want to be cut off from Europe, and we want to be both Scottish and also European, like so many small, successful countries, Norway's uh, no, Norway's obviously not in the EU, but is closely associated with the EU, but Sweden, uh, Denmark, uh, and, and Finland and others. Mm, absolutely. So there is obviously in the SNP and in the Scottish Government a desire to have another independence referendum. Nicola Sturgeon says she wants to have it by the end of next year. Now, we already know that Tories, the Tories oppose this, but there's the interesting thing we've heard from Labour is that previously, at least we've heard from Labour, Jeremy Corbyn wouldn't be opposed to allowing... Scots to have another independence referendum. Uh, but he was asked that again the other day, and he says he wouldn't do it in the early years of a Labour government. Do you think they're going to have to change that line if they want to um, work with the SNP going forward on issues like Brexit? I think it's pretty clear, listening to the way that John McDonnell and Jeremy Corbyn are speaking, that they are distancing themselves from the Scottish Labour Party who are opposed to a second independence referendum. They're talking about accepting the need for a second independence referendum, but just debating the timing of it. They're not going to be in control of the timing, ultimately. They, they want, I suppose, to do some kind of deal with the SNP. And I don't think there would ever be a deal uh, that would involve, for example, coalition, and perhaps not even confidence and supply. Mm. I think the, the deal might be something much more informal, which is, you know, we'll help you get through progressive legislation, because the SNP is is certainly as progressive, and I would argue more progressive than the Labour Party. Uh, but in return, you'll also have to do something for us, which is acknowledge our right uh, to decide our own future. And if we have a mandate, as we will have, and as we do have now, for a second independence referendum, you cannot thwart it. Mm. So, coming up in the... Well, it must be the near future. We're going to inevitably have a general election, for which you are a candidate in Ockel and South Perthshire. Do you think that the SNP is going to win more seats than it has just now? Is it, There's all the talk of the SNP wiping the floor, but you know when you talk things up, there's the anything that is less than a, a huge majority is seen as a loss. So what, what, what do you think is the likely output? The traditional politician's answer uh, to this question is we're taking nothing for granted. Right. That's what you're taught at politician school. Um, but I think the truth is clear on the doorsteps. Uh, People in 2017 had forgotten what the Tories were like, the Scottish Tories. They were new, they were, they were novel, they had a, a smiley new leader who um, was openly gay and, and, and liked to ride buffaloes. And it was all kind of 
strange and new and refreshing and people thought, well, we'll take a punt on all of this. Mm. And what they actually got was a lot of very anonymous Boris Johnson yes-men. And I think a lot of people have been enormously disappointed. These were not folk who were down in Westminster championing Scotland's corner. What they were doing was they were trying to sell Westminster's message in their constituencies north of the border. And we know that the vast majority of Scottish Tories don't support Brexit. So the party has set itself up in opposition to its own members. Um, I think, uh, from all the soundings I get, uh, and we know this is what the Tories privately think themselves, that they're going to lose the vast majority of their seats. I suspect Labour will be down to just one seat, mm-hmm. um, if, if that. So I think it will be. Um, I think it will be a good night for the SNP. Mm. And are you? You've obviously you've had some time out from campaigning. Are you looking forward to going back into it, or is it something that is? Well, it must just be exhausting. You certainly need energy to campaign, but it's it's very good fun. I, I like people, I like meeting people, I like going around the doors, and I quite like debating political opponents as well. So I'm very much looking forward to Luke Graham, who's my opponent in Oakland, Perthshire, agreeing to do a whole series of debates around the constituency with me, because um, this is a guy who was originally strongly opposed to Brexit, then supported Brexit, providing it involved membership of the single market, and now uh, supports the um, suspension of Parliament and also a hard Brexit. So I, I'm really keen for him to tell me why he's done this uh, abrupt vault fast in the course of 18 months. One can only feel that uh, career prospects may have been a motivation, but that, wouldn't that be disappointing? Or perhaps he's just had some sort of extraordinary conversion to the merits of a hard Brexit after half an hour with Boris Johnson at number 10. Well, we'll see. I couldn't possibly, possibly comment from of a political not. point of a political perspective, but if Luke Graham is listening, I'd very, be very happy to interview him and hear his views on the subject as well. Now, of course, we have been bigging up the SNP, um, or rather, you've been bigging up the SNP for um, for the past few minutes. I thought but, I'd just been descriptive. Oh, right. Okay, of course, of course. Um, but it, there have been a few mumblings, some a few voices of discontent uh, amongst the SNP delegates at, at the conference so far. The very opening of the conference saw uh, a a small group of campaigners trying to suggest a plan B for independence for what they they thought would be, I suppose, a quicker path to independence rather than this group Nicola Sturgeon wants to go down to be very legal and very um, uh, sticking to the process. They wanted to be a bit more um, radical with it and get independence by any means necessary. Is that something that you think is... A growing opinion in the party, or is this a kind of impatient wing that just needs to calm itself? Well, some of your listeners may not be aware that the way that we are required to get independence is by applying for what's called a Section 30 order. So, in other words, we have got to ask the permission of Westminster in order to hold a referendum. I'll just say in parenthesis, can you imagine if Brexiteers had been required to go to Brussels and ask the permission of Brussels to hold a referendum in Brexit? They needed artificial resuscitation, but nonetheless, (laughs) they, they don't seem to see any difficulty whatsoever in Scotland, which is meant to be a full and equal member being required to ask for permission, but I'll park that thought there. Um, That is something, that the process that we went through in 2014. Uh, Nicola Sturgeon has herself described it as the gold standard of uh, referenda. I think that she is right. I think that if we want 
to have our independence delivered, no questions should be asked by anybody about the legitimacy. And in particular, when we apply to rejoin the European Union, which I think we will do quickly, uh, we want nobody to say, but there were some questions over how you got your independence. We don't want any questions of anybody boycotting it because they don't think it's a legal referendum. So I, I think we have to go down the official legal route. I think we have to get uh, Westminster to uh, agree to it, and then we have to win it. And I think we we will win it. And for those who say that we should have a, a plan B, well, I'm guessing Nicola Sturgeon, she's, uh, she's not daft. She probably does have a, 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 a plan B up her sleeve. But is she going to stand at a stage at the party conference and say, oh, by the way, Boris Johnson, this is my, this is my fallback plan? Of course she's not. Mm. Um, nor should she. But if, if I was a betting man, I would say that the, the most likely outcome is the strength of opinion will become so clear to Boris Johnson that he will have to acknowledge it. In fact, he might not even be Prime Minister. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn will certainly acknowledge it and, and will have our second gold standard referendum and win it. But do you think you're able to convince the length and breadth of the party of that strategy? Do you not, do you not think there will be the more time that goes before an independent referendum, the more people will be discontent with the fact that they aren't getting their referendum tomorrow or they can't see their, independent, their referendum coming in the next 18 months or so? I think people... There are always going to be people, be people who feel frustrated at this, at what they might think is a, a slow process. But we were talking at the start of this interview about how much the SNP conference has changed. I remember the SNP, when I first joined it at 16, was a relatively small party. It had MPs and single figures. It's now the biggest party in, in Europe, as I said, uh, with a majority of seats and in, in government for more than uh, a decade. Scottish politics has transformed. I think a bit of calm and I think a bit of patience is, uh, is exactly what we should be showing because I think it will deliver dividends. Uh, different question. You could be in the next, well, three months, six months, an MP back in the Commons as you were before. What would be the first question you would ask Boris Johnson? Do you know, I was actually asked that at one of my hustings debates by somebody and... The answer I gave, which I'm afraid I'll give again because you weren't at the hustings, <laughs> so you wouldn't have heard it, um, is that uh, the thing about Prime Minister's questions is they are topical. So the question I will ask will be a topical question, which I can't know three months in advance. Um, but the last question I asked the Prime Minister at Prime Minister's questions was this. Uh, a constituent of mine, a woman living with dwarfism, had had her car taken away from her because of, um, of, of Tory welfare changes. She was awarded zero disability points despite the fact that she was living with dwarfism and couldn't climb up a staircase in public transport, had to go up in all four uh, arms and legs, and she found that humiliating. Mm. And I went along to her appeal and I represented her in person. And I asked the Prime Minister if the Prime Minister had ever been to one of these welfare hearing appeals. Had the Prime Minister ever personally handled one of these cases? And if so, uh, did the Prime Minister think that they were fair and compassionate? And that's the question I asked. And of course, the answer was, no, the Prime Minister had not been to one of these, but presumably found them enormously compassionate nonetheless. Yes, I suspect so. Well, that's very interesting, John. Thank you very much. We've got, uh, we've had the Queen's speech today, of course. Uh, very big event. With no of, crown. 
No crown, no. I mean, if, well, if, like some of us, you've watched the documentaries on the BBC about the Queen and the Royal Houses, etc., you'll know that the Queen finds the crown very heavy. Very heavy. Very heavy indeed. I mean, I think I'd probably find the crown quite heavy too, but uh, I don't think I'm getting one anytime soon at the DMA. So She wore um, a small crown. A small crown. A mini crown. A mini- and the main crown was carried uh, in its own carriage with its uh, own velvet cushion. Its own carriage? It had its own carriage with its own velvet cushion. And did you notice that the Yeoman of the Guard had little dinky candles in little lanterns and they did a ceremonial searching before the whole thing processed? Wow. Which rather, what was it that uh, Donald Tusk said when he uh, gave that press conference? Something about not wasting time. I hope you won't waste time. Yeah. Well, maybe the Queen just got an Uber and it just, you know, she got upgraded to an Uber X or something and that was, uh, she'd gone through that well, way. Well, it was certainly an upgrade. She yeah. was in a gold uh, carriage with Camilla. There you go, there you go. But, uh, yeah, so we've had the, the Queen's speech today. Do you think we'll have a deal on the table by the end of the week? Well, uh, politi- politicians and journalists uh, often cover domestic politics as if um, there's no European dimension. Uh, all we've got to do is get the DUP on side and the ERG and everything will be hunky-dory. They've still got to get this past 27 member states. And unless there's an almighty fudge, I cannot see what Boris Johnson is going to get that is any different from uh, what Theresa May got. I mean, they're talking about a border in the Irish Sea. That all sounds a bit familiar, a border between Great Britain and and uh, Northern Ireland. So is what he's proposing fundamentally different from what Theresa May got? Um, will he get any more from the European Union? And if he comes back with ter- Theresa May's deal mark, what is it, for, uh, will he be able to sell that to the ERG and, and, and the Ulster Unionists? Mm, remains to be seen. That I'm get, that's sort of fairly pessimistic vibes I'm getting you from you there, John. Brexit is is a disaster. Even with this proposed deal, it's still a disaster. Um, I I can't see any good Brexit, just degrees of bad Brexit. There we go. So, final question then. If you do become an MP, before you were on the Digital Culture, Media and Sport Committee, will you automatically be put back onto that committee or how does it work? Do you have to go through some election process? Um, I have to be um, I have to be given a job by the group leader. I see. So the group leader will decide uh, what, if any, position I uh, get. And which one would you like? Um, well, the ones... bearing in mind that you are on a podcast with, uh, to which the DCMS committee has direct oversight and implications to many of the people listening. I serve at the party's pleasure. Right, okay. <laughs> and with that, John, I think we'll leave it there. Thank you very much for being on the podcast. And of course, thank you very much for having me on your show for the past pleasure. five or six weeks. And uh, we look forward to catching up with you soon. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, as ever, if you have any questions, please do not hesitate to get in touch. My email is michael.sturrock at dma.org.uk. You can find us on Twitter as well. My uh, handle is at Michael Sturrock. If you want to ask John any questions, of course, please do uh, ask away. John, what's your Twitter handle? Uh, At Mr. John Nicholson, no H and Nicholson. No H and Nicholson, there you go. Uh, And of course, you can use the hashtag DMA Polpod, which I had to explain last week is not a collaboration between the DMA and the deceased Cambodian dictator. It is the DMA Polpod with a D at the end, politics podcast, fantastic. 
uh, anyway yes as I say any questions get in touch and look forward to hearing from you soon thanks very much